Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of expertly crafted liquor. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we're talking about Japanese whiskey, the nectar of the kami. You didn't tell me we were doing voices. <laughs> we have a friend that listened to the podcast. And what he told me is it reminded him of like those NPR shows where people talk really softly and calmly and it's just kind of relaxing, you know? All right. And we're just going to explain some stuff to you and you're all going to have a good time. Yeah. I was just giving that a try. Okay. All right. I'm going to play that back and see how it sounds when, when this is all done. I'm curious. So I shouldn't just do the whole episode like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, you definitely should. Okay. Paul, did you see what I did there with the little nectar of the kami joke? I've been sitting on that one for weeks. Straight over my head. Well, somebody out there gets it, I'm sure. <laughs> Pretty proud of that one. I can't keep that up. <clears throat> okay, so we're talking Japanese whiskey. And first thing I want to mention is that when we're talking about Japanese whiskey, it's spelled W-H-I-S-K-Y. There's no E in that word, and there are reasons for that. Japan imported their whiskey-making techniques from Scotland, which is where that E-less spelling comes from. So the E-Y spelling is generally just used in the U.S. and in Ireland. But when you take out the E, that spelling is used most other places, Canada, Scotland, Japan, etc. That's a really interesting tidbit. Yeah. You know, spelling is already hard enough. And now in English, I can't just spell the word one way. I got to think, where did this whiskey come from before I think about how I could spell whiskey? Yeah. It gets complicated. It's all about the country of origin. And I have a little, I did a little deep dive. Okay. To try to explain exactly why, why that difference exists. So it's a long story and I'm not going to, talk about every little detail. If you're really curious, though, there are a bunch of articles out there that kind of lay out all this stuff, like long-form articles about the history of the spellings. But the short version of the story is that in the late 1800s, Scotland's whiskey was actually pretty poor quality. What? Yeah. And the Irish, they didn't want to be associated with that stuff. They're like, we're making good whiskey. We don't want people confusing it with that crappy scotch whiskey so what they did is they added the e into whiskey to differentiate their products so people wouldn't get confused okay. <laughs> i don't know if they succeeded in their goal of not confusing people but yeah they, they just wanted to make people realize that irish whiskey and scottish whiskey were different things yeah well knowing that the spellings like that does make it really easy to quickly tell mm -hmm. yeah and then so the Scottish spelling without the E made its way to Japan because as we will see in the history section, and I guess I already mentioned, <laughs> Japan got their whiskey making techniques from Scotland. And then in the US, we use the spelling with the E, supposedly because of all the Irish immigrants that came and set up distilleries in the US. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So no E was the original spelling, huh? Right. And so these days, the different spellings are pretty much just tradition. And even now, it's not 100% consistent. I think I read that uh, Maker's Mark 
spells it without the E because they're kind of referencing their Irish heritage. Okay. Or sorry, their Scottish heritage. See, I'm already getting confused. <laughs> yeah, right. But yeah, it's it's not super consistent and you know, nobody nobody really cares. The only people that are that are gonna look down on you for messing up are those whiskey snobs and who cares about them, right? Right. <laughs> no offense, bro. To yourself. Am I a whiskey snob? <laughs> uh, no, no, you're just have, a, you're a connoisseur. I have preferences, that's all. <laughs> I'm not gonna shame somebody for their whiskey choices though. I feel like I'd start a distillery and I would accidentally use the wrong spelling and then I would come up with a story like, oh yeah, the Irish heritage. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a good reason, a very smart, credible, whiskey snobbish reason. <laughs> yeah, I didn't spell it wrong. That's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> so I got a couple fun facts about the whiskey industry in Japan. Hit me. From 2015 to 2020, whiskey imports in the United States from Japan more than tripled. Wow. Increasing from $18.4 million to $67.4 million. Almost $70 million of Japanese whiskey is being imported to the U.S. every year now. It's a lot of whiskey. And now let's talk about single bottles of whiskey. In August of 2018... A 50-year-old bottle of a Yamazaki first edition sold for a record $343,000 at auction. That's insane. That's the record for most money for a bottle of Japanese single malt. That was a 50-year, did you say? Yeah, it was a 50-year. Wow. So some bottle of whiskey somewhere is probably sold for more. But for Japanese single malts, that's the new record. That's so much for one bottle. Yeah. I want to know the lifestyle of the person that made that purchase, you know? Yeah. To be able to drop a third of a million dollars right. on a bottle of whiskey. There's a lot of rich people out there, but a third of a million? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, those are my fun facts. Those were fun. <laughs> Should we talk a little bit about the character of Japanese whiskey. Yeah, I think that's an important thing. Yeah, I have some comparisons between Japanese and Scottish whiskey. Ooh, I have a comparison between Japanese whiskey and American bourbons. Okay. You want to go first? Sure, sure. So American bourbons tend to be sweeter than Japanese whiskey. And Japanese whiskey tends to be drier and smokier and peatier compared to bourbons. Okay. I mean, I think a lot of Japanese whiskeys don't have peat at all in there, but bourbons never have peat, as far as I know. Right, right. I've never tasted one that I noticed peat in. Now that I think of it, though, that would be interesting. I'm a big fan of peat. Yeah, me peat, too. Peat in bourbon would be interesting. Yeah, I, there's probably got to be someone doing it, right? Well, actually, I'm not sure if you would be able to call a whiskey bourbon if it was made with peat. They have, you know, regulations. Right, right. I don't know all the rules. Yeah. Overall, just generalizing, because there's a lot of types of Japanese whiskey, it's known to be fragrant and floral and a little bit softer, more nuanced. I would say that's true in my experience. Yeah. So what do you got compared to scotch? In general, I saw that Japanese whiskey is considered to be more delicate and subtle 
than Scotch whiskeys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, they kind of have different philosophies towards whiskey in the two different countries. In Scotland, tradition is really big, right? They're kind of drawing on their their past, their history, their roots. So they try to keep their scotches more or less consistent over centuries. You know, they have these certain flavors that come from different regions. You know, they have each region has its own characteristics in their type of scotch. And of course, they experiment sometimes and make new varieties and stuff, but there's a certain Scottish character they're trying to preserve, right? In Japan, distilleries are aiming for refinement rather than consistency. Kind of uh, going back to that idea that we've mentioned with a bunch of stuff where Japan takes an idea from another country and then they refine it. You know, they, they try to make constant incremental improvements to try to just hone the craft. I find it similar to Japanese food. Yeah. And like just the constant fine tuning to try to get it perfect. Mm-hmm. I saw that mixology expert Jim Meehan has this to say, Japanese whiskeys show a lot of restraint, a lot of elegance, a lot of technical attention to detail. So I think you could say that this pursuit of refinement is what has made Japanese whiskey such a huge deal in recent decades. They've been winning awards for making some of the best whiskey in the world for quite a while at this point. Yep. I'm almost getting pictures in my head of like the Japanese brewers just meticulously, scientifically adjusting flavors and doing it step by step. And uh, the Scottish brewers are like, you got to do it by the heart, just the way grandpa did and preserve the tradition. And both ways are great. And they both make great whiskey. Yeah. I thought that's kind of a cool juxtaposition you set up in how they go about their different styles. Yeah. Different, but both excellent. Yes. All right. Let's talk history of Japanese whiskey. And we'll try to do this in less than an hour, guys. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) So I was going to start in 1853. Does that work for you, Paul? Sure. Okay. So whiskey first came to Japan in 1853, with Commodore Matthew Perry. Oh, we've heard about that guy before. Yeah, the guy from Friends. (laughs) No, this Matthew Perry was the one that came to Japan to force its borders open to foreign trade. And he actually brought along some whiskey for the emperor when he showed up. But Japan still didn't start making whiskey commercially for several decades because there was really no reason to. Imported whiskey was pretty cheap in Japan because of those trade agreements that Japan entered into. So there are two giants of the Japanese whiskey industry. You've got Shinjiro Tori, who's the financier, and you've got Masataka Takatsuru, who's the genius brewer. Mm -hmm. Masataka. This guy was born in 1894 into a family of sake brewers. So, of course, he was expected to go into that business. He studied sake brewing in school, but his true passion was Western liquor. So he started looking around for other people that were interested in making whiskey, and he ended up working for a company called Setsushuzo. This is kind of the biggest company he could find that was working on making whiskey. And this is where he met that other important dude, Shinjiro Tori, who was the founder of Kotobukiya, 
a company that eventually would become Suntory, which you may recognize as one of the biggest whiskey producers in Japan these days. But okay, so at the time, Masataka is working for Setsushuzo, and the president of that company in 1918 decided he wanted to send Masataka to the UK to learn how to make malt whiskey. And that's really like the big decision that was kind of, it would change the face of Japanese whiskey forever. So in 1919, Masataka enrolled at Glasgow University to study chemistry. And then he went on to apprentice at a few different distilleries around there to soak up as much info as he possibly could about making whiskey. Probably soaked up quite a bit of whiskey, too, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) I bet he did. For the research. Yeah, it's all for the science. He also, while he was over there, he married a Scottish lass named Rita, who he brought back to Japan with him in 1920. And that might seem like an extraneous detail, but it sounded like she was really a driving force. She, She was really supportive of his dream. Anyway, in 1922, that company that he was working for, Setsushuzo, they abandoned the whiskey project for economic reasons. So Masataka's like, well, if you're not doing whiskey, I'm out. So he left. And then the next year, he was scooped up by... Shinjiro Tori. Same dude that he had met earlier that was going to you know, make the predecessor to Suntory. So then Masataka oversaw the construction of the Yamazaki Distillery, which was Japan's very first whiskey distillery. And then in 1929, Kotobukiya, that company that would become Suntory, launched the first authentic Japanese whiskey. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a cool story. A note on the Yamazaki Distillery. The area is super famous for its excellent water. Legendary tea master Senno Riku built a tea room there because the water was so pure and amazing. I remember him from the tea episode. So that's why they went there for the distillery so they could get that water. Nice. But Masataka actually wanted to set it up in Hokkaido because the climate up there is so similar to Scotland. He wanted to get as close to recreating everything as possible. But for economic reasons, they had to settle where they did. Right. But Masataka didn't let go of that dream, right? Nope. Because uh, his contract with Kotobukiya expired in 1934. So at that point, he was free to do what he wanted. And what he wanted to do was set up a distillery in Hokkaido. So he went up there with his wife. He started a company called Dai Nippon Kaju and opened his own distillery in Yoichi, a small town way up there in Hokkaido. And apparently, not only is the climate in Hokkaido really favorable and similar to Scotland's climate, they also have peat bogs up there. So he could make peated whiskey, just like they do in parts of Scotland, too. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, mentioned, I keep mentioning his wife. Like I said, she, she seems to be often credited with pushing Masataka to pursue his dreams. Paul, did you see that there's even a really popular soap opera in Japan about their love story? I didn't, no. Yeah, pretty recent, I think. I think it came out in like 2015 or somewhere around there. That's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, in 1952, Masataka's company was renamed to Nika Whiskey, 
1963, Kotobukiya became Suntory. And these days, those are still the two biggest names in Japanese whiskey. And if you're in the U.S., those are kind of the two main brands that you're going to be able to find in your local liquor store. Yeah, rival brands to this day. Mm -hmm. So since then, other distilleries have popped up in different parts of Japan. And these days, from what I saw, there are 11 active distilleries as of 2020. Okay. And, I mean, they have a reputation for making excellent whiskey, especially in the last 20 years or so. I got some, uh, some awards to list here, if you don't mind. I don't. I was just going to mention that the Japanese whiskey market stayed domestic almost entirely up until about the year 2000. Okay. And whiskey really got popular in the economic boom of the 80s. In Japan, you mean? In Japan, okay. yeah. Japanese whiskey got popular in Japan as people had the money to go out to bars and enjoy nice drinks. That makes sense. Yeah. Then everything started changing after 2000. Yeah. So in 2001, Nika's 10-year Yoichi single malt. Yoichi, remember that's that, uh, that first distillery that Masataka set up in Hokkaido, right? They won the Best of the Best Award from Whiskey Magazine. Apparently, that's one of the big things that helped introduce Japanese whiskey to the rest of the world. Yeah. In 2012, the Yamazaki 25-year won the world's best single malt at the World Whiskey Awards. And the Taketsuru 17-year won the world's best blended malt. So they're just taking home like the top prizes all of a sudden. Yeah, those are some big awards to win. Mm -hmm. A lot of praise from whiskey critics as well. Yeah. And in recent years, that popularity has actually led to a bit of a shortage. Some of Suntory's flagship whiskeys have actually been retired recently because they, they just can't make enough to meet demand. And especially in the whiskey industry, that's a big deal because it takes so long to make whiskey. You know, you need to age it for years and years. I mean, to make a 12-year-old whiskey, you need to let it sit in barrels for at least 12 years. Don't worry. In another decade or so, they'll be caught up to new demand. <laughs> yeah, just have some patience. We'll get it to you eventually. <laughs> so. There was one problem with Japanese whiskey. There were outcries that the rules were too loose and it was allowing some liquor that wasn't whiskey and some liquor that wasn't made in Japan to be labeled as Japanese whiskey. So this is a problem as the industry is becoming popular and famous all over the world. Especially because of that shortage, like that kind of exacerbated the problem because if companies can't produce enough whiskey domestically, like, oh, well, you know, if people are still demanding whiskey, we can just bring it in from other countries, call it Japanese whiskey, and we'll still have stuff to sell. Yeah, I could see how if you're in the industry, that would bother you. Like, we're making this high-quality product, and now you're just slapping Japanese on anything and selling it because it's popular. People are going to be like, ah, this stuff's not that good. So the industry banded together to define exactly what constitutes Japanese whiskey. And as of April 1st of 2021, the Japanese Spirit and Liquor Makers Association has implemented new labeling standards for all its association members. 
But that doesn't necessarily include every liquor maker in Japan, though. Right, because it's not a governmental regulation. It's just the industry coming together and deciding, here's how we're going to do things. But I did see that uh, it's expected that the government might put these regulations into law before too long. But for now, yeah, it's still, you know, you, you still can't get fined or arrested or anything for, you know, labeling your whiskey wrong. So these regulations, it looks like they say things like the fermentation and distillation must happen in Japan and the product must be matured in Japan for at least three years, a lot closer to the way that Scotland regulates their industry. You know, they have a lot of rules about what can and cannot be called scotch. Yeah, I read the rules and they seem pretty good to me. It seemed like, okay, yeah, these are, knowing these rules, like I feel comfortable that I'm getting a quality product yeah. and getting what I think I'm getting. So Jason. Yes, Paul. Can you tell us a little bit about how whiskey is made Paul, in Japan? I would love to. Or a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's get into it. Okay, so to make whiskey, you're going to start out with grains, right? Yep. Grains are important. There are different types of whiskey that use different types of grains, and it gets complicated. We'll try not to get too deep in here, but malt whiskey, if you've heard that term, that type uses primarily malted barley. So malted means that they wet the barley and let it start to sprout. You know, malted barley is basically just sprouted barley. Hey, sprouted stuff's good for you, right? So whiskey's good for you, right? Pretty much the best thing you can drink. Awesome. Do we need a disclaimer? That's clearly a joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking that as real advice, but okay. none of you should. Exactly. Okay, so this malting part, this helps convert the starches in the barley into sugar. And sugar is, of course, super important for fermentation, right? That's what turns into alcohol. Yep. So you need to halt that germination process by heating the barley. And if you've heard of peated whiskeys, or I guess we mentioned that a little earlier, that peat, smoky flavor, gets in there at this point of the process when they, they burn peat to dry out the barley. That's where all that peat smoke gets infused into the barley. Oh, delicious. So good. But barley isn't the only grain that you can use to make whiskey. You can also use corn or wheat or rye. And in Japan, there are actually a few distilleries that have been making 100% rice whiskey. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I've never tried that, but I'm really curious. So there's a little debate on if that should be called whiskey or not. Right. Yeah, some whiskey purists, you know, think that's blasphemy can't use rice to make whiskey. That's just shochu. And I mean, it is fairly similar to shochu because they use that same koji mold that we've talked about. You know, they use that to ferment soy sauce and miso, right? And yeah, yeah. other stuff. So the spirit is basically shochu, but then instead of being bottled right away, they put it into barrels and age it like a whiskey. Yeah. I think of it more as an aged shochu. But you know, it's kind of half and half. Yeah, it's somewhere in between. Because actually, after they age it like that, they're not even allowed to sell it as shochu in Japan anymore because of regulations about shochu, like how dark it can be. Yeah. But they also can't sell it as whiskey in Japan because of that <laughs> rice and koji brewing method. 
So what they do is they export it and sell it overseas in countries that don't have the same regulations, like, for example, the United States. Slap a Japanese whiskey sticker on it and fly off the shelves. There you go. Okay, maybe this is going to take a little longer than I thought. We just got to... <laughs> we just got past types of grains. <laughs> we, we haven't even made alcohol yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you got your grains. Now you got to extract the sugars by mashing the grains. So the grains are ground up, they're mixed with water, and you end up with something kind of like porridge. They call this the mash. I like that. The mash. The mash is ready to go. Yeah. The monster mash. <laughs> What's next, Paul? Well, now you got to ferment it to turn those sugars into those alcohols. The alcohol is pretty essential. Yes. It's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. So you need yeast to eat up all that sugar and convert it into alcohol. And this is another part where Japanese whiskey can be a little bit different because Japan has a long history of fermentation. They have a lot of different types of yeast that they use. And those specific Japanese yeasts can lend a certain Japanese flavor to your spirit. So this fermenting process takes 48 to 96 hours. And then you have something called distiller's beer. Yeah, who knew whiskey was made from beer, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it basically is beer. You got this stuff. It's like 7, seven to 10% alcohol. Whiskey's like hard beer. Yeah. Just got to make that stuff stronger. Oh, that's why I like it so much. I like beer too. So how do you make it stronger, Paul? You distill it in a still. Exactly. So distillation is basically just where you evaporate the alcohol and then you condense it again to separate it from the unwanted stuff in the beer. And there are different types of stills you can use here depending on the type of whiskey you're making, but the principle is basically the same. And you end up with this clear spirit, high alcohol content, not a ton of flavor, but it's still going to retain some characteristics from the grain that it was made from. So the next step, I think, is probably the most important part for what the flavor of your final product is going to be. You have to age the whiskey. Yeah. You got young, immature whiskey at this point. You want mature, wise, old, um, experienced whiskey, right? Yeah. So like scotch, Japanese whiskey is wood-aged. So basically, you put it in a wooden barrel for a bunch of years, depending on how long that blend is going to be aged for. Right. Generally 10, 12, 18, something like that. At least three, according to those new regulations, right? Okay, okay. Because not all whiskeys even have age statements. You know, you hear people talking about, oh, there's the 10-year, the 12-year, the 15-year, but sometimes there is no year on there. True. So some types of whiskey have to be aged in specific types of barrels. For example, bourbon has to be aged in brand new charred oak barrels, American oak. Like that is bourbon. That's what it's all about. But other types of whiskey, like Japanese and Scotch whiskeys, have a little more room to get creative. So Scotches, a lot of them are aged in ex-bourbon barrels, which means they get those barrels from the U.S. that were used to make bourbon and they stick, you know, their spirit in there to age, and it, it soaks up some of the bourbony types of flavors, you know, it gets, it sucks out whatever has been left behind in that wood. So scotch is like 
more evolved bourbon. You could say that, I guess. It's kind more of like seasoned. <laughs> a second generation or something. Yeah, that's interesting. The combination of the flavors. Mm-hmm. And sometimes whiskeys are aged in a lot of different types of barrels too. You can use pretty much anything. They can use barrels that were used for sherry or port, cognac, rum. The sky's the limit. You just find, find a barrel somewhere, put your whiskey in there, see what happens, right? And in Japan, they sometimes use barrels that were used to hold Japanese liquors, like umeshu, or plum wine. Yeah, that would be a totally unique liquor right there. Yeah, we should hunt down one yeah, made that way. That sounds good. Also popular in Japan are casks made from Mizunara. Yeah, that seems to be really popular. It's supposed to have really unique flavor characteristics. Yeah, Mizunara is the Japanese oak. It's supposed to give uh, citrus and spicy notes. Yeah, I also saw that these casks are really expensive because that wood only grows in certain parts of the country and apparently takes 200 years to mature to yeah. the point that you can make a barrel out of it. You can't use that oak until it's 200 years old. That's insane. So there's not enough to go around, so it's a really special thing. Yeah, a single cask made of that wood could cost thousands of dollars. Crazy. Yeah. So whatever wood you choose to use for these casks, over time, as the seasons change, the air pressure changes, the temperature changes, depending on the climate of where you're aging it, that spirit is going to get pulled into the wood and pushed back out of the wood again and again, year after year. And that whole time, it's getting infused with the flavor from the wood and the flavor of whatever spirit used to be in that barrel. I just, I don't know. There's something awesome about that. Like something romantic about the idea that it's just sitting there year after year, just waiting to become the perfect whiskey, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. And it works so well. Yeah. So when you see that age statement on the bottle, like if it says 12 years on the bottle, that means that all the whiskey in that bottle was aged in a barrel for at least 12 years. There might be some older whiskeys blended into there as well. But that age statement means everything in there was aged for at least that amount of time. I also want to note, whiskey does not continue to age once it's bottled. A 12-year whiskey, if you buy that bottle and keep it for 30 years, it's not a 42-year bottle of whiskey at this point. It's still just a 12-year whiskey. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so now you have your mature whiskey. You know, it's walking out of that barrel. It's got like this super long beard, gray hair. He's like, what's been going on for the last, okay, maybe it's a 12-year whiskey and he's just a 12-year-old kid walking out. (laughs) Hey guys, I'm ready to go in the bottle. So you can bottle the whiskey straight out of the cask. If you do, you could call that cask strength whiskey. Which is very tasty, Mm -hmm. but can be pretty harsh if you don't mix it with a little water can be a little intense for some. So more commonly, the whiskey is actually diluted before bottling it, but only to a minimum of 40% alcohol. Whiskey can't be lower than 40%. And that's how they get those numbers, why so much alcohol is 40%. 
They're not just perfectly pulling it out of the barrel at 40% every time. It's usually a bit higher, and then they cut it down to exactly the percent they want. Exactly. You could also color your whiskey with artificial colors. A lot of brands do that. Gross. It's a little, I don't know, I feel like it's unnecessary and can be misleading. I get why they do it. You expect a certain color from a whiskey, but... I've had enough lighter colored whiskeys now that taste really good that I don't, I don't care what the color is. Yeah, it's really just a psychological thing to try to, you know, make it look good on the shelf. So the whiskey will pick up some color from the wood, but yeah, they just don't want people judging whiskey by its color so they make it a little darker. So there's another unique thing about the Japanese whiskey industry. If you take Scotland, for example, there's a whole bunch of little distilleries And they will switch and sell whiskey to each other so that they can blend them together to make their blends of whiskey that they sell. So you might get whiskey, blended whiskey, from whiskeys made from different distilleries. Whereas in Japan, they tend to be bigger distilleries, bigger companies that kind of own the whiskey brands and they're the ones that produce the whiskey and they tend not to share. So if you get a blended whiskey in Japan, it's blended from different whiskeys only from that same brand usually. Yeah. I couldn't make up my mind if this gave them less chance to be creative and that it was kind of a negative thing. Or maybe it was kind of good in the way that they could really purposely make two or three different whiskeys with characteristics that they knew would blend together. So they're kind of really harmonizing the whole thing from start to finish, planning it out. Yeah, I don't know. It's different. I mean, I could see pros and cons, I guess. Like in Scotland, if you have access to all the distilleries in the country, you have a much broader palette to paint with yeah. if you're blending and looking for a specific flavor in your end result, you know? But if you have to make it all yourself, I mean, you have more control over the process, but you don't have quite as wide of a selection when you get to the point of blending it all together. So let's talk about some whiskey terms because there's, there's some terminology that can get a little complicated. And, uh, you know, it's important to be able to decipher the words that are on a bottle. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, One you're going to see is malt. That just means that the grain is sprouted. Yep. And if you see something labeled malt whiskey, that whiskey needs to be made with at least 50% malted barley. Yeah, malt makes for a nice sweet whiskey, but it's a little bit expensive. If you see single malt whiskey on a bottle... What that means is that it's malt whiskey that comes exclusively from one distillery. So it's not being blended with any stuff from other distilleries. It could be blended with stuff that's also from that same distillery, but the single means single distillery. Mm-hmm. And there's also blended malt, which is sometimes called a pure malt. It's a blend of different single malt whiskeys from different distilleries. Right. So here's, when we introduce the word blended, this is where it gets a little tricky. Yeah. So that word can refer to different things. If you see blended whiskey, it could refer to blends that contain non-malt whiskeys. 
So this would be whiskeys that are made with other types of grains that are not at least 50% malted barley, right? Maybe you got some more corn in there, some wheat, whatever. Even if they're made at the same distillery, you could still call it blended because it's not malt whiskey. So yeah, you got to kind of pay attention. It can get confusing. Blended whiskey is not the same as blended malt whiskey. Right. Did we make that clear? I think so. Okay. It is kind of confusing though. Even after like studying this, I still have to like think about it Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I'm reading those words. Yeah. So sometimes whiskey snobs think blended whiskey is lower quality than malt whiskey or single malt whiskey. A lot of people say they prefer single malts because they think they have more character, you know? And I mean, in a way that's sort of true, like a a single malt is going to give you a character specific to one distillery. So you might get something that's a little more, a little bit further from the average whiskey, if that makes sense. Like it might have its own specific yeah, you start blending things for. together and they get a little more similar. Mm-hmm. They'll balance out. Yeah. But in Japan, I saw that it seems like, for one, blended whiskeys are more common in Japan and there's not as much elitism about single malts because in Japan, they seem to focus more on getting that perfect blend. And this might even have something to do with why a lot of companies don't really mind importing whiskeys from other countries. You know, it's not about just producing the perfect whiskey in-house. They just want to be able to blend all these flavors together in the perfect way. I respect that. You know, I'm not going to judge whiskey on what's on the label. I want to taste it. And then I'll see if I like it or not. Yeah. So I saw that in Japan, they're more likely to talk about master blenders than they are to talk about master distillers, like you might hear in Scotland. Interesting. Yeah. Paul, I think it's time. Finally, it's time. We have a a couple Japanese whiskeys here with us in the studio that we're going to taste and tell you all about it. Yeah. Because who doesn't love hearing a couple people drinking and talking about (laughs) it, right? (laughs) So I've got Suntory Toki whiskey. From the Suntory brand, obviously, the famous brand established in 1923 that we talked about. This is 86 proof, so it's 43% alcohol. Uh, The description on the bottle, a vivid blend of carefully selected Japanese whiskeys, silky with a subtly sweet and spicy finish. Okay, so blended whiskey. This is a blended one, but it's from Suntory, so... You know, it, it contains whiskeys from all, or at least some, of Suntory's distilleries. Mm-hmm. But it's also not a blended malt whiskey, right? Correct. So, so we have different types of alcohol in there as well. It's not 50% barley or more. Yep. It's got a little bit of a lighter color. Yeah. It's a nice looking bottle, though. I really like, I've noticed that Japanese whiskey bottles seem to try to exude a sense of class and sophistication you know what i mean oh yeah like you look at it and it looks more expensive than it is <laughs> yeah not that this is particularly the cheap because japanese whiskey's hard to get right now but there are a lot more expensive ones out there yeah it didn't even come in a box if you guys know what that means <laughs> <laughs> what do you got over there jason so i this one is in a box 
This is the Suntory Hibiki whiskey. Uh, Paul actually bought me this for Christmas. Thank you, Paul. Wonderful. You're you're welcome. No coincidence at all that I just happened to end up be getting some. (laughs) That's not what I was thinking when I gave it to you. I believe you. (laughs) So let me read some of the stuff on this box, I guess. So it says, Japanese Harmony a meticulous blend of the finest selection of whiskeys. So this is another blended whiskey from Suntory. Same kind of category as Paul's. Uh, this one is 43% alcohol. Same as mine. Okay. And it, it has this long, it has a lot of copy on the back about, you know, it's marketing stuff. Yeah. Is yeah. that interesting enough to read? Are there any like tasting notes? It does have tasting notes. Do you want to try it before we read the tasting notes, though? We can kind of compare our initial impression to the notes. Sure, sure. Okay. Let me pour you some of this. Yeah, please. All right. Thank you, Jason. That's a fine pour. Thank you. We're going to start with yours. Yep. This is the uh, Suntory Hibiki. Kampai, my friend. Kampai. I feel like I'm getting a little sweetness in the smell here. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's tasty. I definitely like it. Full-bodied flavor, like a lot of flavor. It hits you strong. But delicate. I feel like delicate is a good word for it, too. Yeah, it's definitely not even like close to overpowering me. You want to hear these tasting notes, then? Yeah. So the nose, it says, rose, lychee, hint of rosemary, mature woodiness, sandalwood, I think I can get a little of that sandalwood. Yeah, that's that sense. woodiness I'm tasting, and I like it. I like the woodiness. Mm-hmm. In the palate, it says honey-like sweetness, candied orange peel, white chocolate. Okay, yeah, definitely the sweetness there too. It's definitely a bit darker than mine. Yeah, by color. Yeah, I will it's say dyed or not, who knows? Yeah. I will say my, I don't think my palate is particularly well-developed. You know, I would never come up with these notes myself. (laughs) Right, right. That'd be really hard. And I'm more of a fan of the super peated scotches, the ones that just smack you in the face. Tastes like a campfire. Exactly. But this is delicious. All right. Well, let's give, uh, let's give the Toki a try. Yeah, this will be interesting. Like you said, definitely a lighter color. I feel like I'm getting more fruitiness in the smell. I was going to say it's a little drier, maybe. Not quite as sweet. I almost want to say pear. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, not quite as sweet. Mm. A little more of the spiciness. Yeah, spicy. It reminds me of something. See, this is, this is where I always get stuck when I'm tasting a whiskey. It's like, that taste is familiar to me but I can't put my finger on it. I can never just like spit out a word to describe that flavor. Yeah, I could never be a food critic or just describe tastes all day. Well, this is great. This is not the first time I've enjoyed a little sip of whiskey while we've been recording, but I get to talk about it now. I hope, yeah. I hope you guys are at least enjoying this. Pepper. I think there's a little pepper. Okay. I guess that kind of goes with the spiciness. Yeah, yeah. What did, can you read the tasting notes on that one again? Silky with a subtle, sweet, and spicy finish. Okay, yeah. I can yeah, see that. Silky. It's very smooth. Yeah. So as we're tasting these, let's talk a little bit about how you would enjoy whiskey in Japan. 
I mean, the number one thing that always comes to my mind in whiskey in Japan is the highball. Yeah, it's definitely popular. It's a drink consisting of whiskey and a mixer, often soda, sometimes ginger ale, served with ice in a tall glass. And that's maybe how most people, I feel like, would try and join this toki. Sure. It'd be very common to have a highball with that. Yeah. You could also just mix the whiskey with water. If you didn't want soda or carbonated water, very common. Just mix it with plain water. Yeah, I was surprised how common that was. And I thought it was really cool that uh, they mix it with hot water in the winter mm. and they mix it with cold water in the summer. Yeah, yeah. That was the main reason I saw was why they like to mix it with water is because of Japan's hot summers. You know, you want something that's not going to dehydrate you too much. And they want to drink that lasts a while. Ah. So add a bunch of water. It takes a lot longer to drink. When you first said that, I was like, why not just put it on the rocks? But then you made it clear. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And for the hot water thing, I saw that uh, there's a certain whiskey that's supposed to go well with miso soup. You mix it with hot water, and then you have this hot water down whiskey with miso soup. It's supposed to be a good pairing. Okay. And there's a word for mixed with water, mizuwari. And I actually bought some of this accidentally in a can at a convenience store in Japan. I was just looking for whiskey, and I, I read the word whiskey on there in <laughs> Japanese, but I didn't, you know, I, I kind of ignored the kanji for water, I guess. And yeah. I, it was not quite what I expected, but uh, I mean, it's not bad. It's not my preferred way of enjoying whiskey, but there's that. And then if you mix it with hot water, the word for that is oyuwari. Yep. Um, high-end whiskey is often enjoyed neat, like it is, you know, most places, I guess, because you, you want to get the full character of the whiskey. You don't want to dilute it. But in Japan, I saw that instead of using the word neat to talk about drinking whiskey with nothing else, they would commonly refer to that as straight whiskey. Okay. I've heard that before. Yeah. Pretty much interchangeable. Arkeep, give me that whiskey straight. I've heard that once or twice. Yep. And you'll also see people drinking whiskey on the rocks. Oh, yeah. Just with ice. Oh, yeah. Two cubes. I'm going to need a diamond-shaped ice cube. Thank you very much. (laughs) And I need to see it carved right in front of me, right before it goes in the glass. (laughs) Have you ever seen that? No. Dude, it's insane. Some bars, like fancy bars, will pull out a block of ice that's perfectly clear. And then the bartender will pull out a knife, and he'll, like, shave the corners off of that ice cube, and it, it's crazy. He, I've seen somebody shape it into just this perfect diamond, perfectly clear. And Sounds drop luxurious. That yeah. And that just melts away in your whiskey. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of drink you're paying like 20 bucks for, just oh, for the definitely. performance, you know? Yeah. I went to this really great rooftop bar once, and man, every drink just came with all this flair and orange peels and this and that. It looked great, and they tasted good. And being on a roof, nothing's better than drinking on a roof, right? Yeah, there's a pool up there, too. That was a dope place. All right, so you know how to drink your whiskey, and you know what your whiskey is and how it's made, and the history of how Japan started doing it. So now you're in Japan. Where are you going to go to enjoy this whiskey? I think I just got some peanut in that toki. Peanut? Maybe. Okay. You see it? I, I see peanut? it. It almost feels like half a PB&J. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you can find whiskey all over the place in Japan. 
bars, restaurants, izakaya, convenience stores even. I was surprised, actually. The very first convenience store I walked into on my first trip to Japan, there was like an end cap on an aisle that was just all whiskey. And not just Japanese whiskey. They had scotches. They had, I don't know, I mostly remember Japanese whiskey and scotches, but they had a lot of stuff that I was really surprised to see. And they had like little bottles, so you could try a bunch of different stuff. And it's very reasonably priced. I remember that too. There's something about seeing something like that that wouldn't be allowed where you're from that just like makes you feel like a kid again. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, I'm in a 7-Eleven and they've got whiskey and they've got beer and I can get whatever I want. Like, this is so cool. Dude, that's, that's what I love about convenience stores in Japan is you just find all the stuff that you've never seen before or just things are just done a little differently than you've ever seen. Yeah. We live in a place where up until a few years ago, you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, in big cities in Japan, you can actually find dedicated whiskey bars. Yep. And they'll have a huge selection of whiskey from all over the world. Suntory and Nika, those two big companies, have their own whiskey bars in Tokyo where you can try almost all of the whiskeys that they produce. There's another one that I've had my eye on in Tokyo. It's called the Tokyo Whiskey Library. What? Yeah. That's the coolest name. Look up pictures of it. They have like, it's one of those places where they got this really long bar and then behind it, it's just the entire wall from floor to ceiling is covered in bottles of whiskey. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Gotta go there. Yep. There's also distilleries you can visit. That first distillery, the Yamazaki distillery built uh, outside of Kyoto is available for tours. They do book up, so you usually have to book it in advance. But you can go tour Japan's oldest distillery. And uh, I saw that they will show you how their whiskey is made. You get to taste a bunch of their whiskey. Yep. And you get to see their Yamazaki Whiskey Library. They have over 7,000 bottles of whiskey that they've made over the years. I just love those two words together. Whiskey Library. Yeah. I can't get over that. Like, yeah. why don't I have a whiskey library? It really makes you feel like an intellectual when you're drinking whiskey, you know? I'm about to go home and buy a bookshelf tonight, and I'm just going to fill it with whiskey <laughs> and call it my library. Want to see my whiskey library? Step over here. <laughs> Japan also has the largest distillery in the world. Did you see that? No. What, which one is that? Fuji Gotemba. It's uh, very near Mount Fuji, as you may tell. Uh, 1.7 million square feet, and it produces 12 million liters of whiskey per year. Wow. Man, you know, it always blows my mind. Think about how long all this whiskey has to be aged, and then to think about how much they're producing. Like, they stock all the liquor stores around the world with this stuff, you know? How do you make that much whiskey? Well, think you're making place? 12 million liters a year. And you're aging it all three to 50 possibly years. So you've got at least 10 years of output lying around in barrels aging. Yeah. Like that's so much whiskey. They've got tens of millions of liters of whiskey just all in and around that place. Yeah. I want to see like the warehouse where they keep all this stuff that just be... I mean, it must be insanely huge. Yeah, just walking by barrel after barrel after barrel. 
Yeah. So there, there are a lot of other distilleries that offer tours. It might be safe to say that most distilleries in Japan will give you a tour. I think that's probably safe to say. So if you're interested in that, you can you know, do research into what kind of whiskey or which distillery interests you the most, and you might be able to check them out. I found a website, actually, japanwhiskeytours.com, whiskey without the E. Of course. They have info and reviews about each tour at each distillery. So you can kind of get a sense of what you might be in for. That's cool. Yeah. And of course, if you're not in Japan, but you want to try some Japanese whiskey, check out your local liquor store. They probably have at least some sort of Japanese whiskey. And if you're looking for something specific, they might be able to order it for you. Yeah, I just got this Toki at a local liquor store on my way over here. There are also websites where you can uh, order whiskey. I think the laws around that are different in different countries, but worth looking into. Yes, follow your local laws. Yes, drink responsibly. That's a thing people always say when they're talking about spirits, right? When they're trying to sell them to you, at least. Oh, yeah. We're not trying to sell anything. We're just enthusiasts. Yep. Well, we've geeked out on whiskey for quite a while. Yep, yep. Maybe, maybe we should end it here. I think I'm about whiskeyed out, Paul. At least... Never thought I'd hear you say that. <laughs> at least for on the mic. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's go enjoy it in, in quiet. Yeah. All right. Well, that was fun. This oh, was yeah. a fun episode. That was, that was great. And we had a couple people, at least, asking for this one. So I hope you enjoyed it. Hope maybe you learned something. If you want to learn more about Japanese stuff, go to our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. Also, be sure to check out our new uh, travel tools section if you're planning on going to Japan anytime soon. And what are we talking about next time, Paul? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about working and or studying in Japan as a foreigner. That'll be cool. I think I'm a little past the point in my life where that would be a possibility, but... It's possible for you. It's possible, just not very realistic. Yeah, yeah, you could say that, maybe. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, there are a lot of opportunities to study and or work in Japan, and we'll cover those for maybe our younger listeners where that's still a thing you might want to do. Well, thanks for listening. See you next time.